love and compassion teach us a thoroughgoing, complete interdependence, um, that there is no independent self. And this is played out imperfectly in our conventional worldly sense of connection and relationship and wanting to be with others that are like us. But that plays out also in a way that brings us suffering when we are doing it imperfectly. Uh, and instead, we eventually come to um, a very deep sense of love and compassion and knowledge that there can't be anything wrong with the world and that everything is uh, dependent on everything else and supporting and nourishing everything else. And to have that as a resource also um, is a great alleviation of suffering. Kim Allen grew up in California, where nature served as an early path for her spiritual life. She went on to earn a PhD in material physics and began working as a technology analyst. But changes in her health refocused her journey, and in 2003, she began to meditate seriously, guided by her teacher, Gil Franzdahl. She soon began sitting many long retreats, and in 2008, Kim was invited to begin teaching. Today, she leads groups in Los Gatos and Santa Cruz and is a frequent guest teacher in other area insight centers. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code Sit, breathe, bow, all one word. Kim, there's this part of your story that really stood out to me, partly because there's a question that I get from people. There's a, you know, a, a subtle fear people have when they start to engage in the spiritual life, and they're worried that if they do, all of a sudden their life is just going to take this hard right turn and take them down a path that they, you know, they weren't expecting. And when I think about, you know, the path that your life has taken, it actually did seem to do that. In so a way. it did. You were a technology analyst, and then, boom, something happened and you you decided that there was a, a reevaluation of meaning. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about what happened, what the process was that you know, brought you from there to here? Well, I've always loved the uh, scientific worldview. I'm a little bit of an intellectual type myself. Um, that's been my inclination, and that's strongly encouraged in our society. And so that was a natural thing for me to develop through school and into my early career. 
And, you know, your introduction says vaguely that there was a change in my health. And I've come to interpret that as uh, just a signal from my body that uh, I was going in a direction that wasn't completely nourishing to me. And I did have a number of uh, physical effects from that. And I realized that in the face of some uncertainty around what that was going to mean in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of my life, that I didn't actually have the internal tools developed strongly enough to handle that as well as I um, wanted to or needed to, in a sense. I had not been well trained in, say, impermanence. <laughs> and, you know, because I was quite young at that time, of course, when you don't think there's going to be anything like that. Um, and so I looked around, you know, what is what could help in a situation like this? And I found meditation, which is not surprising in that my um, parents meditate, or my father is quite a serious meditator at that time. And my mother uh, picked it up again later. And so that was kind of in the background, although I was never so interested when I was young. And so I, I looked into that, and I just discovered that that was a world that was waiting for me. And somehow, though, my sense of following what society was encouraging in me and what was enjoyable to me um, wasn't actually uh, serving me at some level. And that was a big learning for me, uh, to learn to listen to internal messages a little bit more carefully and really began taking my life in a different direction that I, you know, never would have, uh, probably never would have agreed to ahead of time, <laughs> you know, I, mm. you know, in sort of an abstract way. So this right turn that you're talking about that people fear. Um, but maybe what I'll, I'll say to that is that when I ask a group of people, a room of people, um, and I say, so how many of you where you are sitting right now planned to be where you are right now in life? Mm -hmm. Nobody raises their hand. <laughs> you know, once you're past, I don't know how young you have to be to raise your hand to that. Um, but once you get past a certain age, you know, most people have had some kind of a big change or some kind of a redirection or something didn't work. So they had to start something new and they didn't ever plan to be where they are necessarily. And, um, and so I just say, well, you know, you want that to be conscious or, you know, or allow life to happen to you as I, as I did. Um, although I don't want to imply that we have control over these things. Um, we definitely are in the river and it's more about responding, but that's a skill we have to learn by engaging with, with spiritual practice in some way. So that's an interesting connection, right, with the idea of the message that your body is telling you, maybe a, a relationship to health, and then, you know, walking the path of the Dharma. And I, I only say that in the sense of, you know, people have this fear that they have to give up, you know, this career that they've been working on, or it seems that our society is so funneled towards in some ways, uh, behaviors that aren't so healthy. And yet that's what we're pushed to attain. And I'm just curious how, you know, what your own struggle was and what your own practice life delivered to you as you made that transition and, and you know, now as a teacher. Well, yeah, it's, um, 
it's a matter of looking at what it is that that you're practicing for in a sense and i say that deliberately because you know there's quite a number of people in the world who are not for whatever reason um at this stage interested in some kind of practice um by which i mean something where you're deliberately undertaking uh learning a skill or doing something repeatedly that will have some turnaround transformative effect on you you know it's a path that you generate and yet and there are also people who are interested in that and they have you know maybe not articulated clearly what that is so um i certainly hadn't but i did have when i was younger always a sense that i was uh i wanted to look for the truth i wanted to know how things worked so that's why i became a scientist that's what it seemed clear to mm. do um i was very interested in the natural world and uh you know the stars the planets the earth how do we fit into all of that carl sagan was one of my early heroes you know this kind of wonder at the universe and of course that's not especially encouraged in the you know career kind of world but i <laughs> you know i still kept that inside and but i think at some point i maybe fell away enough that i forgot some of those questions and so um and maybe they weren't asked in a way that uh, actually was the right thing i think we need to keep refining this question you mean they weren't asked in the career world or or just in life in general i think i didn't know what i meant by by true you know mm. and i don't i still don't think i know that but um <laughs> uh we're offered a lot of things we're told a lot of things are true or not true or valuable or not valuable um and so i i had accepted as i said earlier i had accepted the scientific world view that um which is founded in there's an external world and we are individuals moving in that world and that you know what we can measure physically is how things work um those are kind of fundamental assumptions and so i said well within that i'm going to you know i'm going to become a scientist and there there came a moment uh when i was working in the lab in graduate school um which is a very intensive process of really just doing that for your life it's almost monastic uh, to be a mm. graduate student in science and i had a moment where i looked up from the lab bench and something in me said i don't believe in this and of course that wasn't literally true um but it was something in me um saying something and you know i paused i said wow that's really interesting but what i was feeling is that there was something missing from uh this world that i had really committed myself to and immersed myself in and something in me was saying uh it's not completely nourishing to the heart um hmm. you know, this is my you know maybe my later interpretation i don't think i completely understood that at the time but that started a subtle change in direction um in my life and i decided not to pursue a um a full scientific career i didn't try to become a professor or even a you know a scientist in a company because i had this lingering sense of well this this isn't completely satisfying to me and i was young enough to think well i'm going to try to find something 
in the, I didn't know what it meant, you know, so I, something was reawakened in me. And it was very important to have that moment of disenchantment. Um, I don't believe in this. And so then, you know, phrased strangely, right? Because I, I now know that it's not a matter of finding <laughs> the Dharma doesn't ask us to believe in something in particular. But it did re- refocus something. And it took me a few years. You know, I went out and started working as an analyst and, you know, getting into the regular world because, you know, I had to earn a living. Um, and still, though, there was this question. And eventually it said, no, you're still not paying enough attention to me. I'm going to change something about your body so that, you know, you have to pay more attention. This is a little more intimate, right, than a thought coming into your mind. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't want to make it sound like a long drama, but, it, you know, that was kind of the second sign. The thing about the spiritual is it'll come knocking on your door, and if you don't open the door, it'll bang the door down. <laughs> and, you know, um, for those of us for whom that's really uh, something pulling at our heart. And so I, I did uh, have to look more carefully, and lo and behold, then that opened doors to find my teacher, to find a center, to find a practice that I could do. And simply by engaging in that practice, other things started to happen. You know, I met different people. I found, encountered different things online and books that people told me about. And uh, I eventually picked up another path, although there was this, you know, I look back and I see there was a gap um, from the time when I was late in graduate school saying that I didn't believe in it to a few years even working before the path started to arise for me. So there we have these times sometimes, these dark nights of the soul, as they're called. Um, and then something new will come. And so for me, that has been really starting to learn more of what I understand now to be something that is true, which is the mind. You know, the mind is not completely true in and of itself. Let's be careful with that. But it's closer. You know, We start to see, oh, it's not that there's an external world and I'm an individual interacting with it and struggling in it and trying to get things from it, that this model is um, uh, bound up with suffering. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And through meditation, we can see the ways in which the mind is constructing uh, very much its own experience. And uh, without becoming overly philosophical in that, that can become practical. Oh, we have a choice about setting the direction of our life, about choosing how to be in a given moment. Um, we always have the choice about our response in a given moment. And so simple spiritual teachings like this can really begin to reshape the, one's life. And that's is what I try to gently help people to see, is the ways in which they're caught in one particular way of seeing things and that there could be other possibilities. And I don't know where that's going to go for people. Maybe I'll take a right turn. <laughs> <laughs> now, you use a lot of the, the classical texts, the early teachings of the Buddha, uh, for your practice, but also for uh, when you're teaching uh, students. Yeah. And you, you use them as a way to inform the modern life. And I'm wondering, you know, how the students relate to those texts that, you know, sometimes read as quite ancient. Um, Yeah, this is a very 
very interesting and important point um, in that it is easy to uh, take the perspective that texts written by monastics in Asia <laughs> millennia ago um, you know, may not be relevant to uh, the Western world, to a world with capitalism, a uh, globalized world, uh, democracy, democratic institutions, and all the politics that go with that. I mean, we really live in quite a different world uh, than mm -hmm. ancient India or China or Japan or other places where the Dharma has been propagated from. So, um, you know, at a logical level, I think that's a fair criticism. <laughs> but I've learned to pay a little less, less attention to uh, the stories of the logical mind. Uh, this is part of the process of letting go of only paying attention to that, you know, to that part of the mind. And when we look more carefully, these texts are not really, they have many dimensions to them, let's say. So they're certainly carry the practice instructions. And I think what the logic objects to is the kind of the worldview that goes with it sometimes. You know, it talks about things in certain language and it refers to images that are usually agricultural and so there's a way in which the mind sort of says oh, I can't relate but um, you know what if we saw them more as texts that are touching into deeper layers of our being I work a lot with the Pali Canon which are you know purported to be the earliest teachings that we at least have record of from the Buddha and I think the Buddha was a lot more than uh, a local spiritual teacher who knew something about, you know, his little world in ancient India. Because he, you know, having done some meditation myself, I understand that, oh, you get to really see how the mind functions. And I don't think people's minds at that time function any different than our minds do now. And he, he had to think, well, how am I going to convey things that um, are going to be translatable? you know, across many different uh, kinds of people. And so this is a long explanation for saying, you know, let these texts touch into the heart and speak to the part of us that is looking for something like truth or something like peace or love or compassion. That's what those texts are really uh, resonating with in us. And those qualities are just as relevant, if not more, well, just as relevant uh, any time or any place that you are. And so um, I encourage an open mind in looking at the texts and finding the ways in which they speak to us much deep, much more deeply than our uh, surface life of, uh, yeah, of just the practical world. And is, is there a particular story that stands out for you about um, where you either encountered a text in such a way that it's like, oh, right, that is exactly what's happening right now, or perhaps something with a student? Yeah, I remember um, I was on a long retreat, and this you know, this does feed back into regular life. But I, I don't know why, but I was drawn to a particular text, um, and in, in fact, to, to chant it every day. And so, and I didn't know why, but it was, you know, it was one I'd read before, but it just came to mind. And so I, I began um, chanting this text a couple times a day while I was on retreat. And I didn't think much of what that effect that was going to have. 
And then after about, this was a three month retreat. And after about a month, um, I started to have insights, uh, about what the text was about at a um, different level than just reading the words of it. And then, uh, as I kept going throughout the retreat, I found that the images from the text, um, made more and more sense. Like I saw how my own life to some degree matched what images were being offered. So I often mm. point toward the images of the text. So this text is the, um, the Mangala Sutta, which is uh, one of the texts from the Pali Canon that is about the Eightfold Path. It's about the um, path of practice where one transforms oneself from being um, in the world to finding something that is transcendent of the world. And then it doesn't end there. The last stanza of the text is about re-entering the world in a way in which one doesn't suffer anymore. And it encapsulates the entire path in, you know, a dozen stanzas or so. And I found that um, what I was doing, um, looking back, is by incorporating this text deeply into my mind, I was um, giving my heart uh, a sense of the path. And when I came back out of that retreat, you know, I don't chant that text anymore. I still think it's useful when I read it. It has a resonance for me. But it, I don't need that text in such an explicit way because it's been incorporated into me. And the understanding of it really makes me see how the stages of the path unfold. And so I, I find that in subtle ways, it was guiding a certain stage of my path when I was trying to um, have a sense of um, how to step on to this, you know, what the Dharma was really asking me to do in a sense. And so it was a support in a way that I uh, didn't understand at the time, but has unfolded in the years since that retreat. You know, that story reminds me a little bit about something, uh, one of the articles you wrote, where you talk about something along the lines of uh, the, the practice of the Dharma has to become some sort of relationship with the teachings of the Buddha. And uh, you were using the word intimacy, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I think of Enkyo Roshi who talks about it um, also. I mean, there's a lot of teachers who talk about intimacy, but sometimes the Dharma can feel so, well, sometimes in a way spacious, but also very impersonal. And I love it when the teachers talk about intimacy like how it becomes an intimate practice. And so I just was really pleased when I read that line. And, but I just wonder when you're helping people, what does that mean? Like the Dharma has to become like a relationship. Mm. Yeah, this is such an interesting aspect of teaching because um, it's not that I know something and I need somebody else to know that. Mm. <laughs> um, or... Um, but it's like being more um, a facilitator for the other person to find that, that thing inside of themselves. And so there's a way in which um, I encourage people to start, start from this place of, you know, what, is, what deeply moves me? And, or maybe why do I practice some question like that? And really um, asking that at a deep level 
not because we're going to get an answer that we know is the answer and we can write it down and stick it on the refrigerator necessarily, but because the very act of asking that question um, touches into that part that can transform inside of us. And so, and then seeing what emerges from that, it's almost like it's a pretty much a bootstrap process. <laughs> what we're doing here is that, you know, we do a little something and then there's an internal change because of that. And then that helps us know what the next step to take is. Uh, you know, there's a, a retreat center in Massachusetts that has a bunch of hiking trails um, on it and on the land, but they have the trails, you know, pretty well marked, but uh, sometimes it snows, and so you couldn't see the trail in that case. And so they, in addition, as a safety measure, they've put um, uh, colored dots on the trees such that when you see one mark, you know, you can then look and a tree a little farther down also has a red mark on it. And so you know that that's the next place on the path. And the way it works is that um, the marks are just at the right distance that you can only see the one where you're standing and the next one, but you can go to that one. And once you get to the next red marked tree, you will see the tree after that, which you couldn't see before. Mm. And so um, this image, when I first saw that at the retreat center, I thought, oh, this is the perfect, yeah, <laughs> you know, the perfect really way like to mark a path, idea. right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And so this is, um, <clears throat> this is what we're doing for ourselves uh, to the degree that we can. And this is, what we sometimes need help from a teacher on uh, and what is the art of being a teacher is to help people find that next blaze on the tree. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I don't know where the trail is going, but I have complete confidence that you never get to a place where there are no more blazes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's part of the confidence in the Dharma that we come to have. Yeah. That image reminds me of a, I think I was reading Anne Lamont, I think it was Anne Lamont, and she has this bit about how to write a book, and it's like setting off uh -huh. at night, and you know there's a road that takes you from Massachusetts to California, but your headlights only go so far. Right, yes. And you just know that it's going to get you there. You just have to go forward. And you can see just a little ways, but I love the idea of the blazes on the on the path. Sometimes it can yeah. feel like you're getting a little lost. I guess that's where a teacher is really important. Yeah, we do need guides along mm. the along the path. Now you've worked with a few different teachers, but uh, Gil Franzdahl was your principal teacher. Is that how it was? Or? Yes. How did you find Gil, and and what? You know, for someone who's looking for a teacher, you know, what was your yeah. experience in finding one to guide? Well, you know, it's these like these mysterious things that you look back on. Um, so, I, of course, I had this kind of family background where at least where my parents were meditators, and so I didn't have any obstacles. And were they, to were they meditators in, in the Buddhist tradition, or no, um, a transcendental oh, yeah. meditation? Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, I wasn't so interested in that. But then when I um, I eventually found somebody who taught me to meditate as a way of um, being able to manage chronic pain, which I had um, during this time when my body didn't work so well. And he also was not from the Buddhist tradition, a different one. But um, 
he suggested that I find somebody else to meditate with because uh, that can be helpful for people. Mm. And so I literally looked on the web and found the closest uh, meditation group, which happened to be a, uh, a group in San Jose um, that's an insight group. And so I went to uh, sit with them. And they are a bit of a spinoff from Gilfronstall Center in Redwood City. And so after I'd been with them for a little while, a bunch of people from that group were going up to a day long at Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. And it wasn't, Gil wasn't the teacher at that day long. It was some guest that they had brought in. But I said, all right, and I, you know, I went with these people. And it happened that, um, I don't even remember who the teacher was that day, actually. <laughs> but hmm. I do remember that when I arrived at this, the Redwood City Center, um, they all went over to say hello to Gil, who was there to introduce whoever the speaker was that day. And so it happened that they introduced me to him in the, you know, in this group setting. And, um, for some reason, when, you know, he, all he did was look at me and say hello. But at that moment, I felt completely seen in a way that, um, maybe I hadn't experienced before, one of kind of a spiritual connection. It's hard to know how to describe that. And so I had this sense of, oh, this is an important person in some way. It made an impression on me. And, you know, now I've, you know, looked enough into the spiritual life and understood that this can happen at times when we meet our teacher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, somewhat naively, I then said, oh, well, this, this feels good. I think I'll come more often to this particular center. <laughs> and, <laughs> I was really very naive at the beginning because I had a lot of blocks, you know, from the scientific yeah. um, sense and my belief in my own cognitive mind being the thing that I could really trust. Um, and so I've, uh, yeah, but luckily, you know, the, somehow the spiritual signals and other things were, could get through all that static. <laughs> and mm. uh, um, yeah, so I began coming more often and then started uh, going on retreats with Gil and, you know, having interviews with him. And yeah, it just took off from there. Mm. And it's interesting in the sense that, you know, a teacher is really there to tell you that truth, you know, whatever that term comes to mean is really something that's within you. But a teacher is so important in the development process of, you know, what the relationship with the Dharma or the relationship with mm -hmm. the teachings. And, uh, you know, it's kind of this fine line, I think a lot of people walk where they get very attached. I see people who are very attached to their teacher, which I understand. I mean, I, I adore my teacher. Um, but ultimately, it's about finding, really developing your own relationship that is the one that's on the path to liberation. That's right. So the, a teacher can play a lot of different roles. And um, most fundamentally, they, they are, I would encapsulate what you're saying as uh, your teacher provides the connection to the Dharma for you initially, either in the sense of seeing that the way they are is somehow the way you'd like to be, or you feel something in their presence, or they tell you something that moves you at a level that you haven't been moved before, but somehow you get that connection established and something in you says, ah, that's it. And so then there is that attachment, you know, there is that 
adoration or imitation or what, however it plays out for us. Um, and it's all part of the process. So, you know, the teacher takes that on, is willing to play that role, is willing to give, give their life for that, for the students, in a sense, to have their life be used for the benefit of others. Um, but as you said, there is a, uh, also at some point, um, the need for that to express more individually. So we are not our teacher. And however that realization comes will also come to us. Sometimes people become horribly disenchanted with their teachers mm-hmm. and they realize they're human beings or, or it doesn't have to be so dramatic, but something grows within us that was, you know, originally uh, nourished by by the presence of the teacher in some way, um, and there's even this is even named in the teachings is that we we become what's called independent in the Dharma, meaning that we have an internal sense of where to go next. Now that doesn't mean there's never a role for a teacher again. Uh, teachers speed the process in many ways, and um, and just the sense of having others on the path. But um, wisdom, you know, wisdom teaches us. A very deep independence in a sense and that's imperfectly played out in our sense of being separate from the world you know in the way that we suffer is usually how we feel separate from the world but when we undertake the wisdom teachings we find that that's actually a an imperfect reflection of something that's really true there is something in us that is untouched by the difficulties and um, and having that as a resource is enormously um, nourishing, empowering, and of course, then able to be supportive of others. And I'd, I'd be remiss not to then point out the flip side, which is that love and compassion teach us a thoroughgoing, complete interdependence, um, that there is no independent self. And this is played out imperfectly in our conventional worldly sense of connection and relationship and wanting to be with others that are like us. But that plays out also in a way that brings us suffering when we are doing it imperfectly. Uh, And instead, we eventually come to um, a very deep sense of love and compassion and knowledge that there can't be anything wrong with the world and that everything is uh, dependent on everything else and supporting and nourishing everything else. And to have that as a resource also um, is a great alleviation of suffering. So, you know, whichever kind of way the mind goes, I think we're going to learn both, both of those. And ideally, a teacher supplies a strengthening of our own um, natural tendency. So we want a teacher that is somewhat like us in order to bring out what's, you know, what's unique for us. And we should have a teacher also that can see the areas where we're not as well developed and can help us to take up things that uh, don't feel as easy for us, but that we do need to develop also on the path. So at the beginning of the show, I sort of set it up as, the you know, there's this fear that I hear from people. But ultimately, we're talking about liberation, like it's the path of liberation, truly, that we're talking about. And I'm wondering in your teaching and as you guide people, uh, what's the support that people can look to or turn to, you know, either in the Dharma or the, the Buddha or the Sangha, like as they, as they walk 
tentatively or with courage, you know, into the path of liberation. What's the support? Yeah, so I think it comes down to the feeling the feeling uh, in our heart of what it is that we value most deeply and i you know i began by saying that i had always had this vague sense of looking for truth later i maybe changed it to peace but um i think just to encourage people to really trust um that there is there is more than conventional society and family and community kind of mores would tell us is what is going to make us happy or satisfied. And to really trust a sense, if there is one internally, that uh, there could be something larger or deeper or more nourishing. And to take that as the whatever comes up when we ask that question, take it as the next blaze on the tree and move in that direction and just see what opens from that. If we go toward that, then the next blaze on the tree will appear. And to find, um, to trust that what we find along the way will be the support that we need. Sometimes it's a teacher, but teachers come in and out of our lives. Sometimes it's a community, and those two come together and go apart. Um, so being willing to use what's available at each moment and um, always staying with the, the voice in the heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Kim Allen encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about her teaching by visiting her website, uncontrived.org. There you can read essays, listen to Dharma talks, see her teaching schedule, and sign up for online courses. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quanam Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes individual Kungan interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.